So in Houston, I'm John Herter. Tuesday, fourth day of October. Great as always to have you along, everybody. In a nutshell, From the Experts is a virtual networking accelerator, helping people across industries connect very quickly in a brief, moderated, interactive show format. It's like a TED Talk with interactive discussion. So what's in it for you? Well, if all goes well, your curiosity sparked, new ideas accelerate action, and you may have helped yourself or somebody else solve a problem, make a connection, reaching the opportunity faster. Because we know that making authentic connections and expanding networks has never been more important to your business. Thank you to our underwriters for helping transform from the experts into action. Endeavor Institute, Unique Ventures, Ecosystems 2030, the Canon Community, and Interpoint. Each expert's in their fields. Please connect with them and find out more on FTE.network. You'll be glad you did. Folks, help me welcome guest expert the Honorable Jim Hondo Gertz. Hondo has been supporting the nation in uniform and as a senior civil executive. I said that wrong, a civil senior executive and uh, on the Senate confirmed presidential appointee for over three decades. He continues now as a distinguished fellow with the nonprofit Business Executive National Security or BENS. He is passionate about ensuring that we get the best and equipment and support serving the nation and home and around the world. So Hondo calls himself the pulling guard and he's never been shy about being the 18 inch neck that eh, sometimes needs to remove barriers in the way of innovation and improvement outcomes. So Jim is married to his high school sweetheart and recently retired, she recently retired after three decades as a public school teacher. So welcome Hondo, we are grateful and honored that you could be on the show with us today. Over to you. Hey, uh, thanks, John. And uh, really good to be here with everybody at FTE and appreciate the chance to talk on this uh, really important topic. Uh, spoiler alert, I am not going to talk for 25 or 30 minutes. I'll talk for a few minutes, uh, just maybe a couple intro thoughts, and then uh, and then really want to get into questions. And, and I will apologize. I was telling John I'm uh, on a trip in Reno, and literally five minutes before the show, all the power went out. Apparently the hurricane reached here too now, I guess. So uh, uh, I, I apologize if there's any delay as I uh, adapt and overcome by uh, uh, getting my, uh, my phone working here for all of you. Hey, um, the, the big topic uh, and where I've got some ideas but could really use some help and I'm hoping this dialogue uh, with a lot of you I know and some I haven't met yet can help is is shaping the industrial capacity for our nation for the next 50 to 70 years uh, and ensuring that we can preserve both our national security and our national prosperity. Uh, and we're really at a crossroads in so many different ways. We're in a competition like we've never had before. Uh, folks will point to the Cold War, but we didn't really have the economic uh, tie-ins that that we have with China and, and the world of globalism. You're seeing technology now get democratized all around the world. You see, you know, simple uh, um, ideas can turn into potent weapons of mass destruction if uncontrolled. Uh, and you see in a, in a, a change uh, at a rate that I certainly haven't seen. Uh, and we're straddled a little bit in this problem with an industrial base, which I call essentially World War II plus 4%. Uh, we, we still think in industrial terms, 
uh, about our national security. Uh, we have an industrial mindset, which was spend a lot of time on the design, try and make the design uh, as risk proof as you can, and then hand it over to, and produce lots of them for as cheap as you can and as standard as you can. And so we overvalue this idea of standardization. We overvalue this get it perfect before you start producing. And it's causing us to, I think by any measure, get the sense that we're not keeping up with the times today and not well positioned for the times uh, forward as we, as we head out. And so, so I think we've got to figure out how together we can go and adapt to this new world order and, and leverage our, our industrial base in a new and important way and, and actually bring in all of the strengths of our national power. Uh, and one of those, I think, key items to think about is, is moving from industrial age thinking to network thinking. Uh, you've seen this happen in the commercial world. You've seen this happen with the advent of the microprocessor. You've seen how the commercial world has leveraged these new tools in creative, adaptive, high-speed, agile ways. Uh, yet, you see our industrial base struggling with these with these tools. Um, if you look at our industrial base over the last ten years on the defense side, in fact, we even called it an industrial base. Might tell you we have a problem. We've uh, in the last ten years, DoD spend is up twenty-three percent. Yet the number of small businesses supporting DOD is down 43%. Even the number of big businesses supporting DOD is down 7%, while the nation, they've grown by 7%. So you have increasing spend, increasing need with fewer performers and less agility, which to me is a, is a terribly disturbing trend. And if you look at the rate of spend for most of our large performers in the DOD on research, their internal rate of spend is 1% to 2%. Um, none of those trends are, are going to be the, the things that we need to move forward. Um, but I think there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Special Operations Command in the world, in uh, you know, the war on terrorism. And we showed there what a network could really do. Many of you on this call helped perform in that network. And by a, by a network, we have it. It's very adaptable. It's very agile. Uh, we can connect things quickly. Uh, we are looking for outcomes, not activity, uh, and we all have a mission focus. And even in what some would consider, consider traditional industrial problems, that network was performing five to 10 times faster than the traditional one. We built gunships in five times less at, five, at a fifth of the cost of the last time we had to build gunships. We built, we built and launched weapons in six months versus 10 year standard. And we integrated new technologies. Uh, Tim on the line here was a big piece of that with our intelligence community partners. Uh, and we were able to do that because we had this network which valued the contribution on uh, not just the status quo. And so I think as we think of going forward, you know, we've got to figure out how to pull this network together. Joe Votel and I wrote a piece uh, a couple months ago which we'll put in a backup notes here about forging this industrial network. And to me, what that looks like, it's got five key characteristics. The first is we return back to an opportunistic mindset. We don't believe we're always going to be, you know, destined to be number one. 
Uh, we don't take our foot off the gas pedal. We are opportunistic. We understand how to take advantage of situations and how to drive the competitive landscape. Uh, the second piece is we leverage all of the tools, one of those being our tremendous financial network, something that we are a leader here in the company. The third is we rebalance our industrial base. Fourth is really that we can rely on uh, partners and allies across uh, the globe. And fifth is we go back to uh, really focusing on talent. Of all those, the one I'd like to focus a little bit today on is how do we leverage and build a much more resilient industrial network, which includes bringing these commercial startup kinds of companies, many of which yeah, you are either parts of or part of that ecosystem and get them into the DOD uh, in a national security thing. I think we had this false premise uh, by many in the Valley and by many in the country that we could separate national security from national prosperity. And that is, you know, you do, do you guys, you go take care of that stuff and in uh, central command and then we're gonna go build Facebook or whatever. And, uh, and I think the last three or four years have shown you really can't separate those. And in a positive sense, I've seen much more interest desire and motion of um, what would be more commercial first technology companies wanting to get into the national security space. Uh, even Google who you know, had their pretty public announcement of you know, not wanting to do anything with DOD you know, has now come back and stood up their own national security division. So I think the signs are pointing in the right way, but we still got a lot of barriers to work our way through. And so what I'm hoping to hear from many of you is ideas on how do we bring all of the capabilities we have as a country uh, to bear on these problems? And how do we transition our thinking from a very transactional uh, mindset, which I would say traditional DOD has. My last job, I ran all the uh, acquisition for the Navy and the Marine Corps, and it was a very transactional mindset. We have a requirement, we put an RFP out, we get an answer to the RFP, we award a contract. Um, much less fluid than in the SOCOM network where it was about what capabilities do we need when, who can perform, who can we bring into our network, a much more fluid model. And so I don't think it's just a scale issue. I think it's a mindset issue, but we certainly have uh, lots of um, challenges to work through. So, so my questions for all of you is, you know, how can we work together there? Where, what models have you seen working and how can we, uh, work together to help uh, solve this critical problem for our nation. And with those kind of as a quick introductory comments, uh, I'm happy to uh, answer questions or move the discussion wherever you, wherever you guys wanna go. Yeah, thanks, Hondo. So a couple of things that already came up here, uh, Tim was talking about, well, how, how do you think DOD, DOD can actually get rapid innovation in? The way they're doing it now is not working, and they're not keeping pace with other nation states. So how do we how do we get there from here? What's your take? Yeah, I think there's a couple. One is we've got to get more outcome oriented than activity oriented, right? And and um, one problem that DoD tends to have is it overvalues status quo. When we do short selections, we look at past performance, and the fact that you did the job but did a bad job is actually better than you have never done the job before. And so I think we've got to get much more comfortable with hiring teams that have the right talent, desire, and skill 
even if it isn't the first time they've, or even if it is maybe the first time they've done something. Uh, and then a second part, I think, is we've just got to drive down the barriers to entry. And it's somewhat uh, puzzling to me, and, and Tim remember from his past life, um, some of the most secretive organizations in our national security space are the easiest for new startups to talk to. Uh, and I think, you know, there's some lessons we can learn uh, from those areas. And then finally, I think we've got to be realistic uh, and talk instead of programs of record, which is kind of this holy grail of everybody searching for a program of record and get more to a capability of need. What capabilities do we need? Uh, and then how can we go after those? A thing that worries me in national security, I think the intelligence community has done a little bit better job is we've got to take care of some foundational stuff, like get to be cloud first and get a modern IT structure uh, and get some better architectures, which will allow new things to um, get into our systems faster. Right now, we still suffer from too many closed systems, too many closed architectures, uh, too many kind of... Uh, original equipment manufacturer for life uh, models. I do think technology is starting to help unlock some of those uh, commercials driving that. We've, uh, we've got to take advantage of them. So, so Ed, Ed, say your last name, Britswa? Close enough? Britswa, yes. Okay, got it, nailed it. So he, he's asking about uh, what's the balance between national security and innovation in the private sector. Last two administrations, put in measures that uh, put more burdens on private sector companies, undermining their ability to access foreign markets and investments. Is it possible for the U.S. win the competition with global powers if we're limited in our capacity to innovate? And yeah, one of the things that Joe Botel and I talk about in that, in that kind of uh, what we hoped was a little bit of a vision if we had it right paper was we've got to get our technology protection regime um, rebalanced. Right now, we have this mindset of we guard ourselves, guard all our secrets, even from our friends. Um, and yet we still seem to lose uh, a lot of our secrets to our enemies. So I think rethinking what does that look like in a modern age uh, is going to be one of the key, key parts. I mean, Again, we're talking about a you know three hundred eighty million dollar million person country competing against a one point four billion person company. You know the one enduring strength of a democracy is its ability to attract uh, and and work with partners. And so I do think that is a key element um, that we've got to put in place. Uh, and then I think we've also got to get to the right balance on the cyber protection. We tended to you know over architect that a little bit. Uh, as opposed to just create some kind of practical ways to get our cyber hygiene where it needs to be. It. Um, what, what, what it does, you know, when I look at Ukraine, though, uh, it shows you that commercial, uh, you know, this separation between commercial industry and DOD or national security industry, I think is also a bit of a misnomer. Because I think, you know, in any major competition or conflict, commercial companies are on the front lines. If you're an oil and gas company, if you're a bank, if you're, you're constantly under attack. In fact, you'll probably be attacked before the military were. So we've got to figure out also how to get our collective ability to work together yeah, in a much, much better place. So Honda, if I may respond, um, yeah. 
I work for the Consumer Technology Association. So I'm on the kind of consumer facing, retail facing side of the equation. I work on all things international trade and increasingly uh, national security. And I think about this question of working with allies all the time. And you probably know over the last four, number of years, we've taken measures that have harmed our allies. And I want to get the country back in the place where we support them, they support us, and we cooperate as opposed to shooting friendly fire at each other. And you know, I think that's gotta be part of the, the vision. Yeah, now, I mean, again, when I talk about network, I mean, I was in the special ops world, our, our great strength was working by, with, and through partner countries, right? Um, many times they have better ideas, better access, better placement. Um, so what do you think are, like if you are king, king for the day on, you could fix one or two things to get us back in a better position, what would they be? Uh, negotiating trade agreements with our allies. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. This administration won't do it. Yeah, I um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. This buy America fury, you know, I got a lot of it, and and I don't. Again, that creates very fragile and brittle brittle supply chains. Um, when I was at the Navy, we started a thing called the Wartime Acquisition Support Plan, where we actually went and said, what do all our allies' capabilities have? If we had to go build 30 ships in a year versus three ships in a year, how could we leverage all of them? But you're right, the framework underneath there has just been eroded to the point where it almost doesn't exist, uh, except for some small areas. Um, that's a great point. I, I agree whole. Okay. Sorry, could I jump in as well? Because that's a really... It's a really key area um, that I've been working on for a while. And we finally got um, integrated into the um, uh, um, standard operating procedures for OTAs into the um, contracting officers manuals that uh, allied nations and they named them um, could be included. Um, oh, sorry, other, other transaction authorities. So these are rapid contracting vehicles used for prototyping mostly before they go to production. And, um, and they had bilateral uh, agreements, but they had never been pulled into the standard operating procedures for contracting officers to put their finger on it and not you know, step out and take a risk. But it was really tough, and it was Canada, Australia. These are not tough <laughs> allied nations, but but it took. I, I mean, I personally commissioned Ben McMartin, who was a, an OTA, another transaction authority attorney, to do that because it was so frustrating. And that's kind of silly, but but um, that's an example where we have something there. They have foci mitigated. Um, U.S. subsidiaries now as a model. Um, NEC, Nippon Electric Corporation, just stood up a U.S. foci mitigated subsidiary NSS so it could actually engage in contracts. But that's incredibly difficult and, and very costly. So it is a barrier. And um, there's so much technology out there we wish we could reap from our partners and allied nations. So thanks right. for bringing that up. So, so please raise your hand or you can speak up now. We have also got some questions moving here. We've got some finance guys. We've got lots of innovation people. We have uh, different industry leaders. Uh, love to hear from you guys. And, and Tim, there was something real specific that you had on acquisition challenge. Could you talk about that? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, sure. Uh, Hondo, thanks. Uh, great to always see you and everybody, everybody else here. Um, you know, I, I've been around at DOD not as long as Hondo, but quite a few decades. I just retired a few years ago. 
And one thing that amazes me, and maybe Hondo has more insight given his previous role, uh, looking at all the service services, Navy, Army, Air Force, so on, uh, it's almost like they operate as independent silos. Uh, are we ever going to get to one ecosystem to have a cyber machine? So I'll pause there. Honda, what are your thoughts on that, sir? Yeah, I mean, I, I could tell you in the Navy, I had I had multiple services even within my Navy. You know, there was a there's an Air Navy, uh, you know, on the surface Navy and an undersea Navy. Yeah, I think though, I'm hopeful. I mean, nothing. If we can get ourselves in a competitive mindset and an opportunistic mindset, which we had in a smaller scale in the global war on terrorism, that cuts through a lot of this BS stuff. And you just can't, you know, I'm not that smart a guy. I'm a hell of a poacher, right? The fastest way to get something is when somebody else already has it. Um, I think if, if we can, I think we've got to get there on cyber because you can't do cyber in a silo. All you do is is, is you create, you know, a surface area for your enemy to go do things to. And so, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, one solution for the world because that just takes too long. And But there should be some basic premise, some basic standards that we can all build to. And yeah, we can have, we can have multiple builds. So I tend to get, get standards and the architecture right. And then let's, lots of performers play in it. I don't tend to like to have the big bang theory of let's spend 10 years to get all the requirements together and spend 30 years to develop something awesome. That's 40 years too late. Um, so I think if we can do that, we're going, and I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, again, one of the things I think we benefit if we can bring in commercial dual use or commercial minded companies, they can't operate in the world by creating their own silos. So it just won't be competitive. That's just not their mindset, right? They want to exploit, it the thing that worries me the most of the dod is getting i mean it's tech it's it infrastructure is so poor i mean when i left and when i was in the navy we had 277 unclassified separate networks trying to de trying to cyber defend that is ridiculous so some of this is we just got to get to get away from stupid right and we've band-aided things for so long if we can do that then it's much easier to find I'd rather have 277 awesome performers helping me on one on one network. So I think where the services are actually trying to drive now is they've got to do some hygiene. Uh, we call the cattle drive. Aaron Weiss was the CEO and I, you know, driving all of this away so we can get down to a manageable infrastructure to then go modify. Thank you, Hondo. And then the follow on easy question to answer is, I hear the DOD talk a lot about uh, innovation and wanting it with small companies. However, now that I'm retired and I have a small business, uh, it's very, very difficult to get in to see the DOD because of its acquisition system. So yes, I'm familiar with OTAs, but that is not the answer either. So where do we go from here, Hondo? Yeah, I mean, um... I think, you know, one thing that we're, I mean, the DOD applauded itself for being, uh, having the largest R&D budget in its history. And I actually think that's a failure. Uh, and I've been advocating a lot. The DOD needs to buy, right? If, if we're buying stuff, everybody can close their VC, uh, you know, uh, promises. They can close their financial loops. They can close their finance, you know, 
we are a little bit stuck in the, um, we're applying ourselves from moving from innovation theater to prototype theater. We've got a bazillion prototypes. So where I'm really trying to press and uh, where I think we need to work on the, on the uh, DOD customer side is, uh, you, you know, we are oversubscribed in discovery and underperforming in deployment. And so nothing is actually getting out into the field. So anywhere I can, I'm, I'm saying, you know, leverage all the investment that's occurring in the marketplace financially, and then use your DOD dollars to actually go buy stuff. Uh, and if you buy things, that tends to close, you know, and you buy them in, the, in an open, transparent, and uh, agile fashion. That I think would be the number one way to solve this problem. Because yeah, you, anybody can get a prototype dollar, but nobody can get a production dollar. And so you make, you know, we've made, you know, one thing 50,000 times over, not 50,000 of anything at all. So that's where I'm really trying to press him. And I think if we can get beyond this notion of wanting to work together to actually rely more on a, that's kind of this, one of the five parts in that visionary statement is relying on our US financial economic system to make the investment and then DOD just be a smart buying customer. I think that will go a long way to getting us into the right spot. Because if you know there's a market there and you know what that market is and you know it's reliably they're gonna buy in that market, yeah, then then game's on, bring your best product to the, to the fight. It's the fact that nobody knows what we're gonna buy that really makes it challenging. Well, what about uh, Judith or some of you folks out there from the innovation community? Any models that uh, this is sparking your mind on? Uh, maybe you've already done this with DOD or something nearby that could be useful in this conversation. Hey there. Thanks for the question. And uh, my colleague, Nate Stemple, jump in if you've got something to add. Um, we work with relatively early stage startups. Um, and there is a bit of a gap between our level and then let's say what, uh, what the tech bridges are looking for, right? To bring in. So if there's some solutions around that, that would be fantastic. And what you said about the prototype dollar is easy and the protection dollar is hard, that, is uh, not only in the dual use case, but just in the commercial space itself. Um, I don't know if there needs to be kind of special buckets that uh, of funding that um, they expect that things don't work out and that's okay because you know maybe we get that one in a hundred rather than one in 10. Because if you're looking at dual use, that's still important, right? Um, right. You got to yeah. look at a broad landscape. I, I think one other thing we've got to get more comfortable with is I go back to this. We have a World War II mindset of the way to produce something is R&D it forever till you get it perfect and then hand it to the production floor. And back then, the key was standardization and cost per unit. But if you look at the commercial world, it's all about features and agility. And if you look, I would say in Ukraine, the standard product that took 30 years to develop is not performing nearly as well as the agile thing that's changing all the time based in a commercial technology. And so I'm hopeful 
where you can take some of those lessons learned and not get into, you know, a big word I use is differentiate, right? We have to differentiate the work. So if I'm building a $13 billion aircraft carrier, that's different than a cyber algorithm or, uh, or an ISR drone that's, that's taking packages somewhere. Uh, and so, you know, and there's some, we are making some success in the Navy. I, I always talk about on nuclear submarines, I care differently what's wet than what's dry, right? And so building a nuclear submarine is hard work and it takes a big industrial complex. Uh, and we would change the outside of the submarine maybe once every 10 years, because we were very, that's an area where we didn't want to take a lot of risk. But we were changing the compute inside every three years and the uh, acoustic detection algorithms every 18 months. And so I think also if we can differentiate the products a little bit so we can pick the right tool for the right job, that could also help get us from this you know, early stage idea to on an actual platform much more quickly for those technologies that it was uh, applicable for. If I could add a little bit from the startup perspective, you know, a lot of our startups that are early stage, you know, they're looking for those first commercial opportunities. And actually, they see those often when they partner with some of the larger primes. And so having small business set-asides is very effective. And maybe there is another type of incentive that can be built into these larger contracts so that the larger primes are more incentivized to go buoy up these smaller companies and give them a little bit of the, the R&D for certain capabilities so that we are creating um, almost a you know, flow through because you know, it, it is often for our, our case, right? It's easy for us to go around the New England network and, and bring right. all the primes to a demo day, right? And get them to show up. And it's a lot harder for me to go around and find you know, uniform wearing personnel to show up that could actually make a difference as to whether their, their technology gets commercialized. Yeah, I think two important part, points that we've got in your brain, you, uh, you raise some good ones here that we've got to keep in mind is the challenge in a consumer world, right, is you got to get customer fit. Now, if the customer wants the Coke can and likes the taste, they'll buy it. The challenge in the DOD world is the customer is not the buyer. So you not only have to get customer fit, you've got to get buyer fit. Uh, and the other challenge is the, the DOD customer generally does not buy components, right? They're, you know, you could have a better generator or a better algorithm or something, but that's not the way the DOD tends to buy things. And so, um, yeah, your idea is on this, how do we get, how do we get primes, non-predatory primes, right? Uh, I think is a, is a really, uh, you know, one of the things that worries me a lot in the industrial base is we've lost the middle of the industrial base, right? So last year, I think the contract dollars, 36% of DOD dollars went to the top five, uh, up 6% from the year before, if I remember my numbers right. Uh, and so you've got more and more dollars going to a smaller number of very big, um, um, kind of thing. And so we've got to figure out how do we, and what's intriguing to me is where I see the opportunity space is if a small um, company has got the right product, how do we create the mechanism to scale them quickly into the middle of the industrial base? The challenge right now is there's no, like a mid-sized company, you're in no man's land. You don't get small business set-asides and you're not, you're not big enough 
uh, to have these huge GR shops. But if you look back to World War II, most of our mobilization and real ability to pivot was on the medium-sized companies, not the super huge ones. So I am, uh, I am interested in ways that we can help high-performing small businesses scale quickly into the middle. And yeah, they've got to work with some primes um, maybe to get there to start, but that can't be the only way we do it. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's some opportunities there. We have folks that are in the commercial sector here. And uh, Ben, I'm kind of throwing this at you, but I know that you're in the banking side and you work with innovation. What, what's your take? What, what do you make of all this? Ben, if you're there, you're, you're on mute. So you got to turn that off. Well, I, I don't have the expertise to exactly to offer a value-adding opinion here, but I think that the overall contracting standpoint and the the kind of the the death gap between the DOD and the commercial side still exists. So, kind of the uptake of the commercial technology and the overall buying process, as that uh, was priorly mentioned, is still a major friction point. Well, and how do you see that? How do you see that in a commercial world? How does the commercial world solve that? Because I see a little bit of the same thing happen commercially, right? The big retailers are eating out everybody else. The big, guy, you know, we're kind of losing the middle of any of the commercial sectors or many of the commercial sectors as well with all this consolidation. Well, I think it's the two-phase solution is it's getting the commercial uh, sector interested in the uh, on the DOD buyers as well as getting the DOD buyers willing to make that gap in the normalization between the two of those connecting those two parties as opposed to that the prior one-on-one -on -one scenario. Got it. Uh, Prabhakarian, are you there? Would you mind, do, do you have a take on this from uh, Unique Ventures VC perspective? I can't see you, so I don't know if you, you can hear me or not. But anybody else is also welcome to come in. Um, you know, some of you guys are with larger firms that are looking at innovation and are also scanning the environment and trying to figure out how to, to speed that up. So you're welcome uh, to, uh, to share any comments you have. Greg, good to see you again. Hope you're doing well there. So we have other questions. Uh, I, can add, I can add one more point um, specifically, you know, you, somebody here is an adventure, but you know, that's a, another great space when we talk about I mean, what, what does the US have strategically that other countries don't have, right? Our venture ecosystem is, you know, over, over and above every other country. And so, you know, the, the early stages that we see companies die out because they don't get that first commercialization. And so maybe there is a space in the DOD that's similar to like getting a letter of intent, right? And there's like, hey, I'm not gonna actually purchase this right now because you're not ready. But like, here's an LOI for when you have it done and then any company can take some DOD LOI for the millions to any venture capitalist to bridge that gap and say, hey, here's my future revenue. Let's like go ahead and capitalize this so I can actually create the staff and the technologies to service this contract. Yeah, I, think that yeah, I mean, that, that's a huge point. I think part of what you know, we were talking, I think when I was, Tim and I were going back and forth, the DOD though is, is not, I mean, the, the challenge in the DOD right now is it's buying power is is eroding and so um either be, between inflation or personnel costs so personnel costs and sustainment costs are about 70 percent of the dod budget uh and those were growing at least when i was the undersecretary at like 15 to 17 percent per year 
which means it's crowding out everything else. Um, but to your point, I, you know, I would love to be in a position where I could say, if you can build this and it can do this, then I'm going to, you know, I'm committed to buying it because that would unlock this whole um, venture um, element, which self, you know, there's not many successes of venture back companies breaking into the DOD at scale yet. And that to me is a glaring hole, particularly since I think 80% of the DOD, the technologies DOD is most interested in are being led by commercial venture back companies right now. So, you know, we've got to get, um, we've got to get smarter on the DOD side. Who's got an idea of how to better uh, educate the DOD on a commercial I mean, I think one of the issues is the DOD that fundamentally most folks want to do the right thing. They just don't understand a commercial ecosystem. Has anybody seen a good, you know, training or and or have any ideas how we could get the DOD to be a more and better informed customer of how to deal with the venture markets? This is Greg Radcliffe. I was I would say what DARPA and ARPA are doing right now seem fantastic. Rather than research, um, what, what, what ARPA is doing, particularly under DOE, is um, taking gambles with industry. And I think that's probably where DOD might be a little bit different. The model sort of breaks down. Venture capital is, I'm expecting eight out of 10 to fail. DOD is not. And so the model there that ARPA has chosen is, look, we're, we're gonna make the risk tolerable for industry and, and we'll fund 80%, you fund 20%. Um, you got to find a little bit so we know you're serious um, and, and moonshot goals. And, and so, yes, you may not make it to the moon, but you might end up with a, with a Mach 5, you know, rather than a Mach 10 jet in the end. And that is an incremental improvement that others can build on. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, uh, the other big struggle DOD struggles with every day is, you know, I've got to be ready to fight tonight and be ready to fight 20 years from now. And you see that tension, just especially as dollars are tight, um, just really just it's strangling the ability of DOD to make those the, the leaps that you talk about there. But we've got to if we're going to stay relevant because our competitors are making leaps every day. Just a follow up question. Sorry, John. While we have Hondo, I'm like, this guy is so wise. So, so one of the things that, that when I'm on the topic of toler tolerating failures, if I think about the U.S. military from a long time ago, you had powerful leaders that just said, let's just do it. And, and that's what happens in industry, too. You have a CEO or a board that says, we're just going to do it. You have somebody like Musk, I'm just going to do it. Um, but this whole thing of, hey, we're going to put out a proposal and bid, it seems like there ought to be a piece of, the, of autonomy. Um, you pro if, if you were president for a day, um, and maybe you will be someday, who knows? But if you were, you would probably, you have some ideas um, and lots of influential people do. What are your thoughts on, it's like, give more power rather than peanut butter around? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, as you might expect, I was a king of decentralization and, right, Decentralized. My 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 four Ds were decentralized, right to the lowest capable level. Differentiate the work. Pick the right tool for the job. Digitize everything so you get people out of the things they're not good at, and then develop talent. 
Um, yeah, I think to your point where we don't have yet, uh, again, part of what Joe Botel and I tried to lay this vision out a bit is we don't have a national consensus yet that we've got to fundamentally change. And by that, I mean the executive branch, uh, legislative branch, um, and, uh, and some of our public market sectors. So, you know, our, the big five, I think, uh, again, they're, they're great companies doing great work. They, uh, they gave $30 billion back to their shareholders this year, almost reinvested none of that into internal R&D. So they're just waiting for the government to pay for their next thing. Uh, and so part of what I would, I would do is what are the 10 big bets that would scale a, a high-performing small team into the middle of the industrial base? in a way that others couldn't. Because we need mid-sized companies who, are, who have enough runway under their belt, they've got credibility and they can internally invest and make some scale, right? You're not gonna have, you know, a two-person company is different than a 500-person company, uh, but that they're still agile enough to make a big bet, get their board behind it and take it. Um, you know, I've got, a, I've got, you know, probably 50 of those in the back of my mind a lot of it is you're seeing play out in Ukraine right now of, of getting radical about taking consumer grade products and using them in unique ways um, because that's inherently scalable much faster than inventing something, right? And, and, and what the commercial enterprises, what I'll call 